Welcome to another episode of the Gary Anderson F1 Show with everyone's favourite XF1 technical director, Gary Anderson. Today, we're going to take a look back at some of the big stories from the Portuguese Grand Prix weekend with a particular focus on Max Verstappen and also look ahead to F1's return to Imola for the first time since 2006 this weekend. As always, our listeners have been very forthcoming with questions and apologies in advance that we can't fit all of them in. But we can pile straight in on Max Verstappen, can't we, Gary? Because you weren't delighted with some of his driving in Portugal. And that actually fits in very well with the first question from Felicia on F1, which is, what's your take on Max's behaviour and his comments, re his crash with Lance Stroll this past weekend? That, of course, was the, the Friday practice one. Yeah, I wasn't very uh, very pleased at all. You know, Max is a fantastic driver and without doubt just is courageous. He's got huge, huge talent. Um, he's young and hungry, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the reality of the crash itself, he was the one, he could see everything that was going on. He was the one that was trying to pass Lance Stroll. Lance was sitting beside him because he had his own DRS open. So, he, you know, he should have known going down there that Lance wasn't on a, on a cushy lap. He was going to go for another quick lap. And because of the tyre situation, that's what you had to do in that, at that point in time. So, you know, he should have backed out of it and allowed Lance to carry on, but he didn't. He, he kept the car on the inside there and, and obviously they touched. So um, that was one thing. I think the, the consequences of it, obviously, he spun and Lance damaged his car. Um, but at the end of the day, what, what Verstappen said about stuff was, was not right by any means. And there has to be something done about that because... You know, the radio channel is now open for broadcast, and they all know that. So there has to be some discipline put into it by the drivers themselves because, you know, they're setting an example for the young guys coming up, you know, the the young drivers, the teens, 10, 12, 14, whatever. That's the example. that They're watching these programs and they're understanding. And it's okay for the F1 to put a, a beep in here and there, but they shouldn't have to do that. We want to hear the emotion, but the emotion has to be done without all these this swearing that goes on because... You know, we can all do it at the right time, but you, you know, you, you have to realize that there is a responsibility for these drivers now to set a trend for the future. And the trend that's being set by some of the drivers is not a good trend. And that, that has to be eliminated very, very quickly. And I also think then if you go into the race um, where Max and Sergio Perez collided, you know, for Max to say after that that Sergio didn't give him room. Max was the one off the road. Max was the one coming back onto the road. He shouldn't expect everybody else to say, oh, sorry, it's Max Verstappen, I better get out of the way, you know, and let you through. Max is the one that has to stay in control um, to be able to, to keep the, the, you know, the car from crashing. So he's the one off the road. He's the one who should have taken the action to slow down and get back onto the road in a safe manner, and he didn't do that. So, yes, it's the first lap. You have to allow a little bit here and there, but I have to say I, I, I must... See, I'm surprised that the uh, the Stuarts didn't see more into that. He was coming back onto the track and went straight across the road and basically wiped out Sergio Perez's race. And, you know, you take racing point, they put a lot of effort into a race weekend and suddenly, you know, corner three or whatever it was, it's all taken away. Big, no fault of their own, it's all taken away. And that's that really isn't a fair set of circumstances. There's another question that's perhaps connected to this, which asks about Jos Verstappen, Max's father, and says, what were the reasons that prevented him from fulfilling his potential? And which of those traits do you see in Max? Yeah, I did cross paths with him a bit, and, and I sort of got to know him reasonably well. I never actually worked with him. I, I think Jos had probably all the attributes of Max, uh, in that he was quick, and he was brave, but he didn't have Jos sort of leading him. And, and Jos has been able to take Max through all 
Yoss's own downfalls, I suppose you might call it, and tried to make that not happen for, for, uh, for Max. I think that's very important. It's about believing in whoever you've got as a, you know, as a, as a manager or as a, somebody that's watching out in the circuit. You know, I, I can't believe that some of these drivers don't bother with somebody there you know, at the track that actually is their eyes and ears for other stuff. You know, it's so important to just go out in the track and have a look at some stuff. I think if Max was saying to Yoss, look, you know, I'm struggling a bit in corner three, four, whatever it be, you know, Yoss would, would have a look at that and try and see if he could see what, what others were doing. Because as a driver, you only know what's happening in your car. So to sum it up, I think Yoss had the, the talent, but nobody to breed that talent and bring it on to the next level that, that Formula One needed. You know, and it was it was matched up against Schumacher and, you know, he had he had tough teammates at times. So he was um he did a good job, but never really got to the, his true vocation in life, I think. Yeah, some years ago, I did quite a lengthy interview with Jos, and he basically said that everything he tried to do with Max was to give him all the education and the knowledge that he never had to benefit from. So, uh, yeah, effectively, he can learn from his, his father's mistakes. But a uh, question here from Motor Racing Addicts, and there have been connected questions from Adam Taylor, Barry Ralph, Sam Rogers, uh, about why Verstappen's able to get so much out of the car. But the, the specific question is that in MotoGP, Casey Stoner was the only rider who could win races on the Ducati bike. The same appears true of Red Bull and, and Verstappen. Do Red Bull need to change their car design so it has a larger setup window so it suits any talented driver? Um, I think they probably do. And I think they're sort of um, seeing that themselves, to be honest. That, you know, the, the Alfa Tori, uh, as, as Christian Horner keeps saying, it's an easier car to drive. Now, you know, lots and lots of drivers can cope with cars that are a bit nervous to drive. And I suppose Fernando Alonso was one of them. But at the end of the day, that doesn't stop a driver that can cope with a nervous car uh, okay, not going faster in a car that's comfortable to drive. So you have to exploit that. You know, There's always been this thing about the high rake uh, on, the, on the Red Bull and the low rake on the Mercedes. Well, I think Mercedes's record shows that they can get a car that overall um, is capable of winning races very very quickly, very easily, I suppose you might call it. Never easy, but, you know, consistently, I suppose, the word I'm looking for. Whereas Red Bull don't. So I think Red Bull need to look within themselves quite deeply because Max might just be an absolutely exceptional talent and Albon and Gasly just being, you know, Mr. Average, I suppose, but Mr. Good Average. Um, but that doesn't stop Max from going quicker in a car that's more drivable. So I think they need to look at that very, very closely. And And again... Racing Point have shown this year that by sort of following the Mercedes concept of low rake, it's it's not done them any harm. And all round, they have a better package, I suppose you might call it. It's not so picky downforce. Picky downforce is, is okay. You can get the numbers higher, but you really have to be able to use it. And if you know, there's been lots and lots of drivers who couldn't cope with cars that weren't a decent balance. Kim, balance. Kimi Räikkönen doesn't like understeer. You know, David Coulthard couldn't drive a car with oversteer. Jensen Button didn't like oversteer. You know, there's lots of good drivers that basically needed a car to suit them. But you've got to give them a car that's got a wide enough window, I think, to make sure that on a Sunday afternoon it's okay. And um, if you're quick, you're quick. You know, so I think Red Bull. I've got a lot of pressure on their shoulders now because of Toro Rosso doing a reasonable job. You know, Toro Rosso doesn't have the downforce of the Red Bull. It, it shouldn't have the downforce of the Red Bull. They just don't have the manpower and the aerodynamic knowledge, I suppose. But that can also lead you in the wrong direction. So 
I'd say right now the Toro Rosso is a good car to drive, reasonably quick, and Red Bull need to look closely at the difference in their aerodynamic characteristics, which they can do, I'm sure. I mean, they're all one team as such, so I'm sure they'll be looking at things in detail. Next up, we've got a question about Red Bull's ability to provide a championship-winning car. The question is, with Honda's departure, Ferrari going for Leclerc and Sainz long-term, Hamilton likely not retiring anytime soon, and Mercedes having Ocon and George Russell in the waiting room, will Verstappen really ever be world champion? And there's a similar question from Mark A. Neeson, who asks if Verstappen needs to move on from the team to get his title shot. That original question came from the account Senna versus Schumacher on Twitter. The problem with Verstappen having to move on, where does he move on to, you know? In reality, there's only one seat that, uh, or one team that sort of nigh on guarantees you the potential of a world championship. Anywhere else you go, you're going to have to take a gamble, be it Ferrari, you know, Racing Point, Renault, um, any of them. Basically, it's going to be a gamble. Um, he's in probably the, 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 the second potential seat for a world championship. So he probably needs to stick with what he's got. But Red Bull have been promising for so many years, and they're also promising now for next year that they're going to start the season strongly. And if they can do that, you know that's the that's the most important thing because it puts a different set of pressures on Mercedes. If you can start the season, let's say with a couple of wing, a couple of wins, and Mercedes are playing catch up, that's a different set of pressure for, for Mercedes. And I'm not saying they won't come back and and beat Red Bull, but it just changes everything. Normally, what happens is. Mercedes go out in the first couple of races, and before you know it, they've got a 35, 40-point lead on everybody else, and that's it. Done and dusted. You know, the, the pressure is different. The pressure is just for Mercedes to do the job the best they can, and they know they'll probably beat everybody else on most occasions. But if you can turn it the other way around, then it'll alter. And that's the only thing that will help Red Bull to try to challenge for a championship, is the fact that they start strongly and keep that strength up. They haven't done that. They promised it now, as I say, for a couple of years. They're promising it now for next year. They haven't achieved it yet, but that is the big pressure. And our final Verstappen-related question is, does Red Bull need to put in a known quantity driver beside Max in order to find out how special he is? Ricardo was a good match, but Max has raised his level since then. That's from Madim on Twitter. And there's also a connected question with Carol and Martin asking who you would stick in the second seat at Red Bull. Yeah, I think they have to because at the minute they, they don't know. You know, Max might be an absolute rocket ship. Um, and just well, an arm and a leg above everybody else, to be honest. But you know that's never been in the past. Um, there's always been good drivers in the you know the Hamilton, Senna, Prost, Schumacher, all those eras. But the thing is that Max might be exceptional, and against Gasly and Albon, he shows them up. But if you put in somebody, and as I say, is available right now, I'm sure with the right deal done for Nico Hulkenberg, you have got a good yardstick. He was, him and, and Ricardo are probably not that far apart. I think Ricardo probably has a little bit more confidence, experienced confidence, I suppose you might call it, from the fact he's won some races. Um, and uh, obviously Nico hasn't, but we know where Nico is. You know, he's, he's a decent driver. He'll give it a fling, he'll try hard. And as I say, if he can get within three tenths of Max consistently, then I think you'd have to say that Max is, is pretty exceptional. But he's the only one that's out there right now at this point in time that you could line up and measure him against. It's got experience, got experience in different cars, jumped into cars this year, got used to them pretty quickly and brought home a, a decent result. So he would be my choice and I would have him in the car, maybe not for Emma, but for the race after that, to be honest. 
Yeah, Christian Horner ruled out that possibility, but I think there's quite a good uh, good reasoning behind that. The good thing about Hulkenberg is he has done well in cars that with quite loose rear ends and a bit of unpredictability in the past. So that that for me is almost the clincher, and he gets on well with Max. Well, the fact that Christian Horner has ruled it out probably means it's happening right now. <laughs> exactly, old cynic, Gary. Uh, the, the next question, looking a little bit more at the Algarve circuit from David Gossett, said F1 fans and media, and I'll add, Drivers and teams as well had speculated that the Portimao circuit wouldn't offer good overtaking opportunities, but were surprised when it offered good racing. What factors in a circuit provide for good racing in F1, and do you think Imola can still be relevant with the modern, wider cars? So we're slightly getting ahead of ourselves there with a bit of Imola, but I think it's it's worth connecting it to that question. Yeah, I mean, I think Portimao was was a was a great track. I mean, the the, top, the topography, blind corners, all that sort of stuff, I mean, and it was very big and wide. Um, so it did offer a better racing opportunity. Um, I think there's a bit of confusion about tyres. So obviously the, you know, the softer tyre didn't seem to actually perform at all. Um, I don't think on, well, Mercedes obviously proved that they qualified on the, uh, they could qualify on the, on the harder tyre. But not only that, they tried to qualify on the softer tyre, and and didn't go any quicker or didn't go as quick. So you know, a black, a back to back test by the same team showed that the medium tyre was better than the soft tyre. So I was a bit surprised in the race that some people at the end of the race, like Perez, put on the soft tyre to go for that last stint. But at the end of the day, because of the woods of the track, because of the sort of conditions, I mean, the track itself was was very slippery. It was even more slippery offline. So it did bring better racing, I think, than, than if that track had a had good grip level, that you could have used the full track and you could actually have it. The lap times would probably come down a couple of seconds uh, next year if we have one because just the surface will get more grip in it. And that means the racing line will become a faster racing line and you can't go off the racing line. But this year you could do, so that's why it brought a, a bit more racing. The first lap was obviously there was a, a dampness in the air, so there was a, a bit of slopping and sliding going on. <clears throat> and uh, that always brings good racing. I mean, that's the one thing we've seen so many times. Just change the conditions a little bit and suddenly you get a a much better race but but going on to Imola I think Imola's biggest deficit will be the fact that it's an old school track it's not a big wide track there isn't you know very many corners that have got two racing lines I don't know any of them actually to be honest um, it's changed a bit since since I was there it's the, the latest track layout came in in 2008 or 2009 I think um, so it's got a, a fast pit straight now that Mickey Mouse chicane at the pits is, is not there Um so it will have a bit of everything, but it's a bit, I suppose you could call it, without that real high speed, it's a bit like Monza in its own little way with the chicanes. Um, the width of the track will be very similar. So I, I'm not sure that Emily will bring great racing either, um, just because of the width of the track and the size of these cars. And the next question is about the early stages of the Portuguese Grand Prix. It said, why did Kimi and both McLarens have so much grip compared with the others at the start of the Grand Prix? Now, that comes from Damien Faulkner, who is the Damien Faulkner, very, very accomplished, uh, long-standing uh, GT driver, very, uh, very good driver. Well, I was I was at the track, and I don't think the rain was that big a factor. I think on TV it looked like it was a bigger factor, but it, it, I think it's underestimated in F1 just how low grip those tyres are when they're, when they're not switched on. Yeah, I think um, the Damon Faulkner, as you say, uh, that was the Damon Faulkner that almost got his breakthrough in a Formula One car with, with us at Jordan to do a, an aerodynamic test in, in Yorkshire, but it never quite happened for, I can't remember the exact reasons. But yeah, as, as you say, Damon's had a, a long and distinguished career in many of different cars. Um, well, again, and he should know himself, that when you get it hooked up, when you get a tyre hooked up, the difference in the feel in the car is just horrendous. 
and for one reason or another, and it may be just the fact that, that those cars were pushed onto a part of the track on the first lap, first few corners, that really had more grip than the, than the racing line, which with a new track surface is always a bit oily. Um, and with those damp conditions, suddenly, you know, if they were pushed onto a dirty part of the track, as opposed to an oily part of the track, they picked up some grip and suddenly they were, you know, the, you get the confidence from that. So it's very, very hard to know. Uh, as you say, it was two McLarens, so it wasn't just one, then it was Kimi. And I think Kimi would probably get the pat on the back for it because he did an exceptional job. Um, and he was wondering himself why everybody else was going so slow. But if you get into the first corner, the first couple of corners, and the car slops, slides around a little bit, then t turn three, you take it a bit easier. If he got into the turn one and turn two and he was on a grippy bit of track and the car felt good, then turn three, he doesn't have that that feeling, that ease of feeling. So suddenly he's warming the tires up whenever the others are letting the tires cool down a bit. So it just switches around so quickly. And as I say, Damon will know better than the rest of us what a, what it feels like in a race car whenever you just get that feeling of the tires just working. Because the drivers know going out of the pits, you know, the first couple of corners, you can feel what grip level you've got in the car. You can't really feel the balance that much, but you can feel the grip level you've got in the car. And um, if you've got a good car, you know, you can just exploit it so much more. And obviously the two McLarens and Kimi had that. Yeah, it made for quite a exciting start to the race, certainly. Now, the last question is from Ian Phillipson about Huss's overheating rear suspension. He says he assumes it's damper fluid in its location. Now, this was after Roman Grosjean revealed following qualifying they had a problem with inconsistency of rear ride height which was having a, a huge impact on uh, on the aero balance shifting it up to 4.4 percent they've had uh this season which is a huge difference so perhaps you can explain that phenomenon and you did a very good piece on the on the race website about that but uh so repeat some of that i guess yeah i mean it's it's one of those difficult things 4.4 percent is a massive amount of change aerodynamically if uh, i mean that's you know like half of the front wing falling off if you get my just the amount of that percentage balance you know whenever we talk about the balance we, we talk about all the forces in the car aerodynamic forces in the car all meet up somewhere on the car um, and they push the car they push on the car basically to give it grip and then you have a certain percentage front and a certain percentage rear let's say that percentage was was 44 40 percent uh, front and 60 percent rear that would be sort of a fairly norm and if you lose lose or gain four and a 4.4 percent out of the front you get it back on the rear so that makes a massive massive balance change um, and I don't think you could drive the car like that, to be honest. You'd really, really struggle. So what's happening with it? Yes, there are some teams that play around with the fact that they can change the ride height with the, the temperature change in the, in the suspension so that during the race, basically, the, uh, the, the, the rear suspension would heat up more than because of the long run and change the balance of the car slightly. Um, be, become softer in the rear let's say or become stiffer in the rear whatever they wanted to try and achieve to change the balance and protect the tires but it's pretty tricky and you know if you've got anything on a car that's trick first of all you need to make it work fairly well without the trick stuff and then apply the trick stuff on top of it to try and make it work better if Haas have been lost all year because they've got this center of pressure shift um, then they should be looking at it closely I don't know the rear suspension in these cars is not as simple as a damper and damper fluid if it was, you would definitely fix that very, very quickly. And you'd know about it very quickly. You know, a thermocouple onto the damper will tell you immediately whether you're getting out of the, the damper working window. So it, it has to be something more trick. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, you know, an air spring, the volume of the air spring, the volume of the hydraulic fluid that's in the, the, uh, the, the actuator that's 
there's an actuator down inside the gearbox that moves fluid through to where the spring is. Um, so that all that stuff can very easily be undersized or oversized. Um, normally it's undersized because you're trying to save a lot of space. And because of that, then the, the volume changes so much with temperature that it alters the ride height of the car and alters the center of pressure. So I would go back to something more normal very quickly to find my feet before I would get trick. And that's probably the solution to Haas. And as I said in my article as well, you know, Ferrari may, might have this same sort of dilemma. Um, and they could get on top of it with Leclerc's car and, and not with Vell's, but they, they should get on top of it with both cars. Other than that, there's something very, very trick going on. And uh, as I say, Leclerc's engineers have managed to control it and, and Vettel's haven't. But uh, normally, both cars would suffer the same consequences. But if you take Haas, Roman Grosjean's complaining about it a lot more than, than Kevin Magnussen. So maybe there is something there that some people can make it work right and some people can't. So moving on to our more Imola-focused section, a question from Hyman Patel. He says, how difficult is it going to be for teams to set up the cars with only one free practice session? And do you think it's a good idea to only have one practice session? Now, it's it's one 90-minute practice session, two-and-a-half-hour gap, then straight into qualifying this weekend. Yeah, well, I'm going to do a bit of an article on it later in the week. And it's one of those sort of things, you know, they've had practice now with the, with Nuremberg Ring, and that was only a one-hour practice. Um, Imola, it's, it's pretty new for everybody. Most of the teams have been there at some point in time. Um, but it's but it's a fairly new track for for everybody, so there there will be a um, a lot of simulation going on, trying to get the best out of the car for there. But again, you never quite know till you get there what the grip level of the track will be like, and they've never really raced at this time of the year. It's always Emily was always at the earlier part of the year, so it's going to be an interesting thing because you know it's it's a lot of trees around there, and this happens to be sort of breaking into autumn, so you know what happens in autumn with trees. So that could be a, a very a, a big thing as well. You know, you need to go there probably with um, a bit of excess cooling for a start because, again, leaves in the radiator ducts don't mix too well. So all that sort of stuff needs to be taken into account. But um, as far as getting the best out of the car is concerned, I'd do the same as I, I suggested for the Nuremberg ring, is, you know, do what a one session more or less from start to finish without getting too excited about anything. You can do a little bit of initial data testing I suppose you might call it just to see that the car's working okay because for the first half hour the, the track will be getting cleaned up and, and rubbered in a little bit and normally what you see is cars don't run that much, I mean even normal circumstances that Pirelli FIA had to supply a separate set of tyres that you could use I think for 40 minutes for the, that first session just to get cars on the track because normally the track's very dirty um, so the same sort of circumstances will happen at Imola, but you can use that a little bit for uh, for some data analysis, data, data gathering on any test parts you got. But once that the chime strikes for the hour to go, you have to get your head down, I think, and, and look at performance and look at tire evaluation um, because you've got nothing else you can do. So you best get that together as best possible. Drivers should pick a track up pretty quickly. Um, again, so I think one practice session... Is a good set of pressures for every every team, but it will be the team that spends the, the most money on their simulation tools that that reaps the reward. Now, um, I think we've got a question on Alpha Tori did run there um, in a test, so they've got quite a good bit of data there for them, um, and that data will for sure slip across to to Red Bull. And I think one of the things I would say that I, th I, I believe Red Bull now are at a point where they're 
they're doing a better job of their simulation than, than most others. So if there is going to be a track that I would stand here now and say could Red Bull challenge Mercedes, it's probably going to be Imola from the information they got through the AlphaTauri test and for the fact that they're probably just as good as anybody at simulation, if not a little bit better. You've done an excellent job there of answering two questions in one. That was from Alexander Felton, the next one. I like I like the question efficiency. I'm also going to combine two next because Terry Chow asks, what's the best setup for Imola? And Carolyn Martin says, did you have any difficulty building a setup for Jordan Stewart Jaguar cars at Imola with the high high curb use? So, so what are the setup demands of that track? Well, as I say, the, the, the tracks themselves have changed quite a lot since, since I was last there with a Formula 1 car. Um, the, the, the chicane at the pits is, is now gone. Um, and that was about Mickey Mouse and a, a real curb hopper, to be honest. Um, so that's not such a big drama. The others are a bit more like Monza. You know, they are curb hoppers as far as chicanes are concerned, but it's not far off um, what Monza's like. So, uh, you know, traction out of um, out of uh, the, the, the hairpin um, is very, very important because that's a long drag up the hill through Paratella, which these cars, will, you know, I would think will be flat through there, um, and back down to, to Aqua Minerale. Aqua Mineral is a different, difficult corner because it's breaking downhill and then traction uphill. Um, then you've got the chicane at the sort of top of the hill, and then you go back down again to Ravazza 1 and breaking downhill. So braking stability in the rear of the car is quite important because you've got two major braking events going downhill, which means the rear, the rear, there's more weight transfer, the rear of the car gets lighter. So braking stability into those is very important. Wouldn't be surprised to see some um, rear locking uh, and then from um, Ravazza 2 up to the, the first chicane, there's a long, bit of a long straight. So I think from from my days, in the early 90s, we used to run quite low downforce because it was all flat out, no chicanes. Then we got lots of chicanes after Ayrton's accident. Um, and it sort of slowed the track down a bit with a higher downforce level. And now I think it's back to a compromise. And that's that old word in Formula 1, compromise, where probably low downforce and high downforce or low-ish and high-ish, won't be so much different. Now, the corners to the straight line um, will be, you know, is more of a, more of a, comp- more of a balance. So I, I, would, uh, I would think it's, you know, it's just a typical track layout, probably a bit like Nuremberg Ring, nothing too much different from there as far as setup's concerned. And uh, you just got to exploit those curbs a little bit. And as we know, um, I don't think anybody knows what is track and what is off track these days. So it'll be interesting to see how the FIA define it at, at Imola, what is uh, where you can gain time by going off the track and where you can't. So again, that's the thing you've got to exploit because if there's a room to manoeuvre by going off the, the track over the curbs, then you've got to do that. But I don't think there'll be that much of that in Imola. Next question, apparently from Marky Mark, who says, what are the chances of Imola returning to its previous layout without the Tamburello and Villeneuve chicanes? Would modern safety measures make this possible? Um, I doubt it very much, Marky Mark, or Marky Mark, or Mark Marky. Um, I doubt it very, very much because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they can't, they can't have the safety areas at Imola because of the trees, because of all the environment there. So they've had to put the chicanes and pull the speed down of the cars a little bit. So I don't ever see it going back to the to the pre um Ayrton Senna days, whenever uh, you know, it was, you know, two hundred miles an hour around that first corner and you know, it was it was pretty quick actually. And the corner was a serious corner as well. Um I, the biggest thing I ever remember was like Gerhard Berger um in the Ferrari when he crashed and uh, 
and the car caught fire. Um, I mean, that was a massive accident for him as well. But when Ayrton Senna you know, was killed there, that was the end of that being that 200 mile an hour corner, I think. Um, so it's gone forever. Yeah, there was no lack of warnings for the Tamburello crashes as well as Berger. There was a big PK shunt. There was a big Alboreto crash a bit later. So, yeah. I guess that tells you a lot about that uh, that corner. Now, a question from Glenn Freeman, the editor-in-chief of the race and uh, presenter of the Bring Back V10s podcast, who says, what did you, or Rubens Barrichello for that matter, think of the changes made to Varianti Bassa for 95? Was the layout of the corner dangerous in 94, or was it just the high curbs? And also, what do you think of the current layout with that flat-out blast from uh, Rivazza 2 to... Uh, to Tamburello. Now, of course, this is referencing the the Rubens crash in '94 on on Friday when he launched and managed to clear the tire barrier. Yeah, it was a big shunt. Um, you know, the thing, interesting thing here I bring in is just that whenever I was engineering Rubens' car at that point in time, and I used to have, always have my trusty stopwatch um, with me because I always liked, you know, my association with the car was always being part of it. So I would, um, you know, be able to press my stopwatch when the car went past or if we were testing. And I could listen around the track if we were testing and listen to where the lifts were and the you know, hard back in the throat and stuff and almost predict the lap time from it. And I always liked to do that because always, I was, in my opinion, I was in the car. I was feeling the car through my stopwatch as such. And uh, Emily was no exception. Um, we had done the, the Friday practice. We have qualifying in the afternoon. And again, the cars come into view through through that uh, sort of pre, uh, final chicane, the variant of Barca. Um, and I would always start my stopwatch at that point in time. So whenever it come back into view, I could click my watch, and I would know within a tenth of a second the lap time he was going to do. So I could always wind up Eddie Jordan by saying he's going to do a, you know, an X, and they would do that within a tenth of a second probably. And Eddie never knew how I could guess that, you know, because he never couldn't see my stopwatch in my hand. So it was always quite a good good thing to do. But this, this, on this occasion, obviously, it was the first lap of qualifying, and I was watching down the track, and Ribbons came into view. And it wasn't that the curb was high there. There was a dip, and he went a little wide on the exit and went down the dip at the back of the curb, and that launched the car, basically hit the ground, and then hit the curb coming in from behind it, and that launched the car into there. So I was watching all this happening, um, and it wasn't a pleasant sight, to be honest. Um, and it was, you know, it was one of those sort of situations where, uh, you know, changes are always made. Um, was that change for the good? I don't think that was a dangerous corner, to be honest. You know, Rubens got it wrong, and and we suffered the consequences. But I don't think that was really a dangerous corner. I think it was quite a good corner, to be honest. Because I like I like corners. We have to make a decision for a driver, and that corner was one of those where you had to make a decision. And there wasn't a lot of runoff area. Um, it was fast through there, but it was about decisions. The next chicane, the one at the at the finish line, as such, the start finish line, that was always about Mickey Mouse. Um, I never really liked that that much. So, the changes to the track um, for uh, for that incident, I don't think were were really completely necessary. As far as going now to the fly, run past the pits and whatever, it's a bit of a balance tonight between what used to be and what what is now. They've uh, they won't reach the same speeds by any means, um, and there is a chicane there now to slow them down, as opposed to just running wide into a concrete wall, um, as what happened to Ayrton Senna. So it's a it's a decent balance, I think. I don't think it'll be wrong. And the drivers that have driven there earlier this year, um, you know, they liked it in the, in the Alpha Tori. So um, let's see. It should be quite a good race, I think. 
Well, thanks to your efficient question answering, you've kind of answered the next question from Paul Cliff, which is about the Tamburello changes. So we can move on to the final one, which is from Blue Line Books, uh, which is what do you miss about the old configuration of Imola and when did you first visit the track? Um, yeah, my first visit to, to Imola was, I think it was 1983, with an Anson F3 car. And actually, it was quite interesting because uh, it was an Italian driver, Claudio Langes, that drove for us and Oscar Pedrazzoli. Um and we were sponsored, but we had Pirelli tires. We were sponsored by Pirelli, and um, they weren't. The tires weren't that good at the time. I have to say that right now. That's a, it's a quite a thing to say, I suppose, when Pirelli are playing Formula One. But we used to have this bit of a joke that if they didn't blister on the way out of the garage, they were too hard because you had nothing in between. You either blistered the tires or they were just absolute bricks. Um, but I remember that, that that race very or that weekend. Very intently, we went there to do a, an Italian championship race because uh, the Italians wanted us to race in Italy and all our sponsorship was from Italians. And going down into Aquamanorale, uh, the car hit the ground, Claudio's car hit the ground and I hit it so hard, bottom so hard that it actually broke two master cylinders. Uh, they're, an alum, they're an aluminium casting and such. And it broke the two master cylinders around the, the mounting flange. So we arrived at the Aquamanorale with no brakes. Um, it was a bit of a bit of a thing to be honest but we fixed the car and it wasn't too bad and, and did a bit of a mod on the on the master cylinders to stop them having this overhang that that meant they just got such a an inertia shock that it smashed it, it cracked the uh, the master cylinder so yeah early 80s is my first time um at emila with the formula 3 car it's great the formula one's going back there i think we're all going to be looking forward to that one uh, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the gary anderson f1 show but please do keep the questions coming you can throw them at gary on twitter where he is at gary anderson f1 and of course you can read his insights and goings on in f1 on the races website and remember to check out some of our other podcasts including bring back v10s where gary also occasionally turns up with some great stories i think you're on the latest episode actually a, a questions based episode and also the race f1 podcast join us again next week for more from gary 